the Pardis Institute of Jewish Studies. This is Pardis from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, a Pardis alum. This week, Bishalach. This week, Judy Klitzner discusses Bishalach. Judy Klitzner is a member of the Pardis faculty. And now, Judy Klitzner. Parshat Bishalach has another name. As we all know, that is Shabbat Shira. And in fact, this, this parsha has more poetry per square word. Inch of cloth, Inch of cloth than any other. Um, and uh, that seems just appropriate since this, these, all this poetry, all this singing comes in response to the greatest, most overt, bombastic miracles that the Bible has to offer, right? We've had the ten plagues, nature is overturned, right? Subduing the captors, the Egyptians, right? Then this incredible exodus from tyrannical oppression, parting the waters, creating a wall on both sides, the Jews walking through it, they're saved, their oppressors, they are drowned before their eyes. They are they are free. So this is a Hollywood movie. This is this is when you expect the score to rise and the music and the singing and the whole thing. This is where you expect it to come. And if you would like to launch into that, please feel free. I will, this I will reserve the okay. right to try that later. There you go. Okay. So it certainly seems like the right response. I think Ofra Chaza would agree with us on that. Um, so poetry, its songs are, are poetic. And I guess the first thing I want to just just pose here is why is in what way is poetry the most appropriate mode of expression? How is it different than prose? Um, I found one poet who put it very bluntly. He said, "Prose is just poetry that can't stop talking." Uh, right? It's because prose can't convey strong emotion um, with with words. Sometimes it, there is a much deeper effect on the on the listener and on the reader if we actually cut out those words, any extraneous words, and leave lots and lots of open spaces. Um, and in fact, the Gemara in Masachet Megillah instructs us when we're writing a Sefer Torah, how are we supposed to write Shiratayam? How are we supposed to write the Song of the Sea? Uh, we have to write it in a way that emphasizes this poetic imperative. It's written, you're supposed to write it in the form of bricklaying, where there are large spaces between clusters of words. And what better way is there to appreciate the poetry and to encourage and invite the reader to adopt a poetic mindset, right? You, There's room for you in those spaces. So there's space both for the speaker, perhaps, and yes. there's also space for us to listen. Exactly, right? All those things that are too intense to be captured in words, here's here's the space for you to move into those, to those spaces. So um, I wanted to say that even before the poem that we all recognize as a poem, which is the 15th chapter of the book of Shemot, we actually have some kind of prelude to the poem, which in itself is poetic. A warm-up poem. A warm-up. A warm-up poem, like an overture to the symphony. And that is the 14th chapter of the book of Shemot, um, in which we have uh, lots of, lots of um, poetic techniques that are used, some rhyming, different alliterations. And of course, the most, the most recognizable is the re- repetitive sound of um, And we, of course, we, when we hear this, when this, when, when this parasha is read in our, in our synagogues, we all sing it along with the, with the person who's reading the Torah. It has a special tune to it. Uh, but we recognize this as a kind of uh, a poetic signposting in, in the text itself. We're already primed for the poem in the poem before the poem. In the use of a metaphor, the water is like a wall. The, worst of the use of the metaphor, the use of what we call in, in literary 
uh, a theory is called uh, anaphora, something where you repeat certain phrases that give you a sense of structure. I have and never movement. heard that word before. You have not. You've heard it now. So um, I'll give you an example. In the Bible, um, in the story of the Akedah, the two of them went together. First, you have um, you have that that trope in the story where it's talking about Avraham and, and, and Yitzchak. And as Rashi, I think, very correctly points out, the first time it's there, right? Obviously, the assumption is we can count to two. Why does it have to say the two of them went together? First time is to extol the virtue of, of Abraham, who goes as willingly as Isaac, who knows nothing about what's, what's about to happen. Why does it happen a second time? And there Rashi says it's to extol the virtue of Isaac, who's, who now he does know what's happening, and he goes as willingly as Abraham. What's really surprising there is that it comes a third time, this going together. But the surprise is that the third and final time it appears in the Akedah, it's not Abraham and Isaac at all. It's Abraham and the lads that were left behind when he went off with Isaac. And that, of course opens up all kinds of possibilities. What happened here? What happened to the relationship, this, this, this fierce connection between father and son? How does the son get left behind? And somehow Abraham now has a new, a new connection with these other people. But that's the kind of thing where you have these signposts that help measure movement. And here I think the movement in this text is the, the, the water is a wall when the Egyptians are not part of the, of the discussion. It's, it's a wall for them to protect them against the water. The second time, when we get a sense of, of, of an escalation of their sense of protection, now they see the Egyptians drowning um, around them, and they feel, we have never been safer than this. So it's this kind of the sense of, through an emotional use of, of language and of, and of meter, giving us, and repetition, giving us a feeling of, 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 of how, how, not just what the, the, the story of what's happening, but the emotion behind the story. And so happening. by including that phrase here in chapter 14, you're suggesting that we as the reader are being primed to look for the emotional response of what's happening to the people and not just getting a description of the events. That are I believe on. so. I believe so. Yes. Okay. Okay. Great. If I might just throw in a couple of other, other examples where I the Bible, sometimes what's so interesting about this Tanakh of ours is that it shifts almost imperceptibly from one mode into another. We think we're in prose and we're not, we're not waiting, we're not looking for poetry, but sometimes it just slips in to say, hey, wake up, pay attention. Something really momentous is happening here. Um, an example of that is when humanity is first created and it's all even in this kind of, in this prose-like account and then suddenly we have a verse um, in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, Vayivra Elohim et ha'adam b'tsalmo, b'tselem Elohim bara oto, zachar unikeva bara otam. Bara Elohim adam, b'tsalmo, tselem Elohim bara, A-B-C-C-B-A. That's a poetic, that's a poetic uh, uh, formulation that, that gives us a, a, a moment of pause to say something else is happening here. Or another example, when Reuven comes back to the pit and he's ter- he's horrified that his brother isn't there, right? His plot was to leave him there until his brothers were, were elsewhere and he would go save him. And he looks and he says, Va'ani ana aniba, right? Yosef, enenu va'ani ana aniba. You have this feeling, and there I would say it's almost um, uh, hinging on the on the on, onomatopoeic. How do we say that? I think that sounds That's good, right? Yeah. right? It sounds like what it is. Ana, 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 ana. Here's a person who is completely at a loss for words, and all he can do is repeat that sound. He's like stuttering. Stuttering. And, 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 and we, to express himself. And again, we feel, we don't only read about what he's feeling, we actually, he, this, this mode of 
transmission to the reader gives us a feeling of, of being inside the feeling as well. So it's like we're, we're being primed. Uh, an important emotional experience is happening now. Yes. And we have to pay attention. Yes. And now we're ready for the actual shira, the actual poem, um, which is in, of course, getting back to our parasha, that's in chapter 15, Az Yashir Moshe Uvenei Yisrael. It seems from this verse, in chapter 15, verse 1, that the primary poet here is, is Moses. He's, he's singing the song. It's in the singular. The people are singing along with him. Um, Which is important, right? The fact that they are also singing this song, you're saying, is significant. I say both are significant. I think it's significant that both that Moshe is seems to be in a separate category of singing. He is a leader and they are followers. But it is also significant that they're present and they are participating in the song, in his song. Um, the song of Miriam comes at the end of this of this long poem of Moshe's, and I know th- this is not the time or the place to go into the differences and the really fascinating distinctions in this in the song of Miriam. Um, I want to point out really just the similarity between this her song and Moshe's song, which is again it's her it's I believe it's her song. She's the leader, Vatan Lahem Miriam, and even though it seems to be um, perhaps more inclusive, Shiru, she's calling on all the people to sing, she's also leading a responsive um, expression here. I'm going to say these words, you follow me. Uh, I would just add here that there's another poetic, artistic piece that's added here, and that I think goes along very well with the idea of poetry. There's, there's, there's dancing, there's music. Right? Again, there's an expression of something larger than the words of prose. Something something uh, emotional is happening here, something that takes place between spaces and, and that cannot be completely ever articulated. So both Moshe and, Mir- and, uh, and, and, and Miriam feel it, they lead it, the people participate in it, but they, are, I think, are not on an even plane with the poets-in-chief who are Moshe and Miriam. You feel like by the time Miriam's doing it, there's something formalistic, at least on behalf of the people, that they're, they're doing it, but it's no longer this spontaneous, emotional outpouring. I guess that could happen with all poetry. Right? The poet expresses something very profound, and 300 years later in eighth grade, when you're reading that poem... Maybe that, that emotional content isn't present for the reader in the I, way that I, was intended. And, yes, and, and I think what you're suggesting is that even here in the moment, we don't have the same emotional experience that's being taken in by the, po- the main poet and the people who are following the poet. Theoretically, Moshe and Miriam are, everyone's seeing the same event, yes. but it's quite possible Moshe and Miriam and the people are not all experiencing it the same way. That's, that's what, yes. Okay. So, uh, of course, the Parsha is not only this beautiful poetry and gratitude and appreciation. We, we see as Jews, we can't be content with that. We have to go to a more negative, difficult place. And sure enough, the, the Parsha continues. And uh, I, I think we're all surprised by what comes next. There you go. I'm glad you pointed that out. There, this is indeed a very perplexing Parsha. And it seems to have two essential themes that are at odds with one another. One is this spontaneous outburst of gratitude, of wonder, of joy, um, of the almost inexpressible. And the other piece of it seems to be the, the polar opposite, and that is misery, victimhood, and complaining. 
Um, Sounds like my Friday night dinner with my family. <laughs> yes. Just kidding, everyone. That no, no, no. We all that understood that in that in that scenario. You're the one who's expressing the wonders of, of, of yes, nature. Yes, I am wondrous world. poetry, yeah. and they are all victims of complaining. Yes, there you go. Uh, and here again, I would say that before the main event, which is the overt complaining that is going to be presented in this parasha by words like vayilonu, they complain, vayalem, they he, they complain. Uh, culminating in this terrible statement, Hayesh Hashem Bekirbenu Im Ayin, is God among us or is God not? Right? Is that, how could that possibly be a response to all that they have just seen? And how does this fit with that poetic mindset? Um, and again, just as we saw a, a pre-poetry poem, I think what we have in this beautifully constructed parasha is a pre-complaining um, kind of in- indication of, co- of the mode of complaining. And that comes at the very beginning of the parasha. If we go all the way back to the beginning, in chapter 13, verse 17, when, when Paro sent out the nation, God doesn't allow them to go, doesn't lead them, guide them along the way of the plishtim, because it's close. And that seems to be illogical, right? They should go the way that's closest. And some of the commentators try to make sense of this by interpreting the word key, not as because, but even though, despite the fact. But I think the plainest reading of this is, no, it is exactly because it was close. God is saying these people are in danger. They are prone at the first sign of conflict to running back into the arms of their greatest enslavers because they will never be happy, even with these bombastic events that have happened. And that gives way to more complaints. As a result of this, we have this wonderful hifil verb um, in verse 18, vayasev, God causes them, right? They're no longer the primary actors in this. Um, God has to cause them to wander in a, in a circuitous way. Um, and then I would like to look at another hifil verb, okay, because grammar is wonderful and it leads us to deeper understanding. If we look just at the... He feels the causative. The causative, that's indeed. Okay. If we look at the very end of the of this Song of the Sea, just after Shiratayam, in chapter 15, just after the Song of Miriam, we have another causative hifil verb. In this case, in verse 22, vayasa Moshe et Israel. Moshe caused the people to move, to travel. And this is, this is anomalous. Usually people, tr- they travel on their own steam. But here, and Moshe, uh, Rashi picks up on this and says that there's something coercive about this. The people are, they, they want to stay back where they are. They want to collect the spoils, or maybe they're just terrified of moving on. But they have to be nudged along in order to move. Together with this, we have this wonderfully ambiguous term in the next uh, couple of verses later. In verse 23, marata, they came to a place called Mara, very evocative name meaning bitterness. They couldn't drink water from Mara because they were bitter. Of course, the plain sense of this is the waters were bitter, but the Midrash can't resist and says Marim Haim could very well refer to the people, that no matter how sweet the water would be, if you're in a complaining, miserable mindset, that, the, that water will never be quite sweet enough. Um, so just yeah. to, to, to recap what you're laying out here, yes. the, the juxtaposition of God doing all these miracles and yes. all these wonderful things happening, 
and yet the effect of the effect on the people it does not seem, with the exception of this moment of the singing. Yes. They, it sounds like what you're saying is they, they will, in a certain way, they are fearful of leaving Egypt. They're not going exciting, excited and waiting for this to happen. They are fearful. Yes. Uh, even as, as I think you read it, they might even be looking for any excuse yes. to turn back. Uh, and, not, and, and, and again, when the journey is about to pick up again, they are reluctant travelers. They are reluctant to uh, engage on this journey in spite of all the things that they have seen. Yes. And I'm just sort of wondering, how do you understand what's going on here? Right. So I, I want to just um, and move toward conclusion with, 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 a, with a rewind to, the, to where, are, where are all these people coming from? Where have they been? Um, and I think that there is, even before this parasha, we have indications of why, how they turn out to be the way they are in this parasha. Um, Moshe, we have small hints when we first meet him that this is a person who is primed for wonder. Um, when God appears to him at the burning bush, we have this very um, repetitive language that's used in the text. This is way back in chapter 3, where Moshe, there's a bush that's on fire but isn't being consumed. This is back in chapter 3. That is the sound of flipping pages backwards. And there we're told... Vayar, in verse 2, he sees it. Vayar, bo'er ba'esh, right? It's burning and it's not consumed. Vayomer Moshe, and here we have verses that don't, we don't seem to need at all. Vayomer Moshe, asura Moshe says, I will turn aside to see this great event. Madua lo yivar What is that verse doing here? Why isn't the, why isn't the bush, bush being consumed? And it seems that that verse is, is, is really the crux of the matter. We, he is expressing this kind of openness to the wondrous in life, and one has to wonder in reading this, how long has that bush been on fire, and how many people have walked past it without paying attention? Here's Moshe saying, wow, let me look at that. And then the next verse, Vayar Hashem Kisar Lirot. God says, oh, I am noticing you noticing. And so now, as a result that you are a person who notices things, God calls out to him from the bush. He is a person who, who establishes his credentials here as being someone who's open to it. You know, it's so interesting because the, the first verse is Moshe is leading the sheep, and it yes. says, Great. you have coming to Har Elohim. And yes. usually I've always read that as, it happens to be later on, this is the mountain of God. Mm -hmm. But the way you're describing it, he's looking for the mountain of God. Absolutely. He's taking sheep way out where they're not supposed to be. He's a terrible shepherd, by the way, in this instance, because he's just going on his own journey. But he's looking for God. Already from the very beginning, you're saying Moshe is this deep spiritual seeker. He's looking for God before God ever begins to look for him. Fantastic. And Achar Hamidbar, that some of the commentators at Sforno picks up on this, right? He's going out into a meditative state. He's experiencing nature. He is, he is, is communing with it. He's, he's, he's opening himself up Moshe to the one who's... This he's is what we are now understanding that the Misnagdim are completely wrong. Moshe is... We have to redo all those all those pictures in the on the walls in the Many groups in the already have their way there. Pictures of Moshe with uh, Payas and Shrine. Well, don't worry, we got that covered. Okay, so in contrast yes, in to Moshe, contrast, we've got these people, and here I want to say a word on behalf of these people. They have been through a lot, um, right? And it isn't so easy. They've just, earned their bitterness. They have. They have. How do you just wake up one day and say, "Isn't the world a miracle?" Uh, and here, I, I one of one of the most intriguing 
intriguing verbs for me at the very beginning of this the story of enslavement. When it's first described to us, um, we're told it back in chapter one in the book of Shemot, um, we have this seemingly innocent verse that is presenting the uh, amazing proliferation of the Jewish people. Uh, and that is in chapter one, verse seven. The Israelites were fruitful and they they seems it means they swarmed and yeah. they increased. Now of course we recognize the verbs fruitful and multiply from the creation story. These are wonderful words to use, but this Vayishritsu yeah, is very dissonant. Is a creepy thing, exactly. The, the swamp creatures that come out, they're disgusting. And when I look at this, I think about other things, other kind of subtle shifts that happen in narratives, which is sometimes, without giving us a warning, we are allowed to view things from the perspective of someone in the story. And I think this Vayishritsu is an exquisitely subtle wink to what is happening. How is this blessed proliferation being viewed by the host society? Maybe it isn't so blessed after all, and maybe it looks like a swarming of swamp creatures. And what I would argue is that that is something that happens at the beginning of this narrative, and that that swarming, that that swampness, that dehumanizing, actually enters the consciousness of the people, and that is something that is the, the hardest thing to shed. And so that we get to this story, yes, they've been they've been miraculously saved, yes, their enemies are gone, but that doesn't mean that their sense of of unentitlement, of unworthiness, of, of being less than human, of being nothing more than swamp creatures, that that, that that terrible sense of inadequacy doesn't stay with them. And it's very hard for people who don't have a feeling of being worthy, of being fully human, to be able to look, to, to enter that mode of wonder and to respond to, in that, to it in that way. So in that moment where after the, the song has been, or right before the song is sung, it says the people believe, right? That yes. The Aminu Hashem Moshe they believe in God and Moshe, his servant. Yes. You're saying that there's a missing element of belief that is getting in the way here. They don't believe in their own worth. I, and I, I, I want to give you credit because before we opened up this I microphone. I love credit. Here's love your it. credit where you, I think you did a very fine reading of that. Vayaminu bahashem uvemoshe avdo. They believed in God and in Moshe. What's missing from that verse? Okay, I just want to go on record. I just got <laughs> praise from Judy Klitzer in terms of reading a biblical text well. I'm hoping this goes viral. I'm just going to stop there. Okay. Let you continue. Okay. But now, please give us your give us your reading in your so words. So that I think I think you said it that the in order to have a sense of a, a relationship with God, you have to believe you're worthy of relationship. And like you said, they were born in slavery and mistreatment, and may have come to believe that that's they were where they deserved to be. Um, and. There is a, a great poet who said it not quite as well as you did. Oh, His name is, is Rilke, oh, and he said, If your life seems poor, do not blame it. Blame yourself that you are not poet enough to call forth its riches. For the creator, there is no poverty. And I think that, I, I think there's, it's a very, very true and very deep comment. But what we're looking at here is people who, who have that poverty, and it's very hard to shed it. Um, I just want to end, I think... Well, it kind yes, of comes back to your point, though, yes. that why Moshe has to be the author of the poem. They don't have poetry in that. Exactly right. So they're, they're able to join somebody else's poem, and I think we have to give them a great deal of credit for that, that they can sing the song with him, Az Yashir Moshe Uvenei Yisrael. I think we have to give them credit that when Miriam 
calls upon them. Shiru, they, they sing, they dance, um, right? These are people who are pushing themselves toward that. Uh, they're in motion. They're on a journey. The question is, will they, will they be able to get there? And I think we have several biblical books to get through and much challenge. Um, and, and a lot of a lot of successes and a lot of great missed opportunities for that. Um, I would just end by by saying that. Well, I still have a question for oh, you. Oh, go ahead. But, well, I just sort of want to know. So, what's the takeaway in terms of developing spiritual health? You know, what's your own takeaway? What's the educational takeaway? You know, because it seems like from what you're saying, all the miracles in the world can't give you them. Yeah. Right. And so I'm wondering. So I think what do we what, do with that? All, all I'm taking from this is 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 Rilke and 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 Hirschfeld, which is, <laughs> it's it comes from the inside. Poetry comes from the inside out, um, and that in in order for that for the person to find, to find expression within the spaces and within the the, the wondrous mysteries of the world. Uh, one has to open oneself up to it, and I think that all these preludes that we see in these stories are, are invitations for the reader of these books to say, "I'm I'm going to I'm going to take up that challenge to put myself into that mode, so that when it comes, I'll notice it and I'll be able to take part in it." And also, it's not going to be easy. And it's not going to be easy. Yeah, because people always think, if I had seen those things. Right. If only I was alive and saw those things, I'd have no doubts. I'd have no challenges. And from what you're saying, as long as you doubt yourself and as long as you don't necessarily really feel worthy or prepared to experience or articulate radical amazement is before. Yes. I, I think Heschel might have mentioned it earlier. Have, yes. I, yes. I think yes. I'm not sure. I'm going to I'm, 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 you know, I'm raising a question about that one. Then all the miracles of the world won't get you there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my, that's uh, that's uh, pretty striking. So, any last words that you would like to share of wisdom? How we can all go out there and become radically amazed? Ha! Um, I I don't know. I think I think we I think I'll leave it with it with that open challenge. I just I want to just add one more piece that to me I, I just find very inspiring is that if we look at the many people talk about the first mitzvah and the Torah. I want to take I want to take a moment to appreciate the last mitzvah and the Torah, which is in the thirty first chapter of the book of Devarim. Um, where the, te- the verse says, "Ve'ata kitvu lachem et hashira hazot ve'lamda et bnei Yisrael sima b'fihem." Right, write this poem, learn it, teach it to the to the Israelites, put it in their mouths. Leman tiyeli et hashira hazot la'ed l'bnei Yisrael. This this poetry will be a witness for the Israelites forever. Um, and now we can we can understand this on the most minimal level, which is it's talking about writing this specific poem, which is the parasha of Ha'azinu, or we can look at it as well. The Torah itself, in its entirety, is is poetry. We can look at it in a broader sense that the Torah is 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 a symbol of life as a whole that is poetry, and we are being enjoined here with this last mitzvah to see life as as a poem. And and Eli Wiesel picked up on this, and he said, there is poetry in the Jewish experience. Um, this is it. It's there. It's around us. We can complain about it. We can find what are, what it, we can concentrate on what it is it that everybody's doing wrong. We can, we can move into our comfortable corners and pipe in all those, those uh, grumbling attitudes that agree with ours, or we can open ourselves up and, and look at the miracles that are happening around us every moment. Thank you, Judy. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem.